I invite you this morning to take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading in verse 18 through verse 25. And today I want to begin a journey talking with you about the wonder of Christmas. The wonder, W-O-N-D-E-R, the wonder of Christmas. And I want to begin reading in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, as we make our way on this journey through the story of the, of the Christmas birth, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, Lord, I pray that you will stir within each of us the wonder of this season. Lord, we look into the gifts that we're giving and receiving and the excitement and the thrill of those things, and there's a sense of wonder about that. But Lord, more than anything, we want to look into Bethlehem and into that manger scene, and we want to be struck with the wonder of the Christmas story in just what it means to each and every one of us. Speak to us today. Lord, those that are here in this auditorium, those that are in the other auditoriums watching, those that are at home watching online, God, speak to us today as only you can do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, there's never a time for wonder that's more appropriate, I don't think, than during the Christmas season. When I say wonder, W-O-N-D-E-R, I'm not talking about the questioning kind of wonder. The dictionary defines wonder as a feeling of amazement and admiration caused by something beautiful, remarkable, or unfamiliar. And it's that feeling of amazement, it's that feeling of admiration that I want these next few weeks to cause in each of our hearts as we consider the wonder of Christmas a lot of things that can cause us to have that kind of wonder. When our children were born, there was that sense of wonder. There may be a gift that you'll open this Christmas and you'll look inside that box and you'll be amazed at the gift that's been given to you by somebody that loves you dearly and cares for you with all of his or her heart. There are lots of things that can cause that kind of wonder, but there is nothing that should cause the kind of wonder in our hearts like the incarnation of Christ in Bethlehem. And we need to understand what Jesus was doing when he came in Bethlehem so that our hearts are filled with that wonder. 
the hymn writers, the Christmas hymn writers have picked up on this idea of wonder when it comes to the Christmas season. For instance, one of the familiar carols says, I wonder as I wander out under the sky how Jesus the Savior did come for to die. For poor ordinary people like you and like I, I wonder as I wander out under the sky. Or another familiar hymn that we sing sometimes at the season, Star of Wonder, Star of Night, Star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us with the perfect light. And we could go on talking about other of these Christmas hymns, these Christmas songs that are about wonder because when you look into Bethlehem and you consider the Christmas story and what God is doing in this story, it causes us to be filled with wonder. That is, if we understand it and we grasp the meaning of it, it causes us to be filled with a sense of wonder. So as we begin this journey, and I hope you'll go with me through the course of this entire journey, but as we begin this journey today, there's three things that I want to point out to you from the story that we've read here this morning. Three things that Christmas reminds us of as we think about the wonder of this season. First, Christmas reminds us that God is guiding us when he changes our plans. Christmas reminds us that God is guiding us when he changes our plans. Can I just be honest with you today and tell you that nobody likes change? At least very few people that I know, and I certainly don't like change. We all have our lives sort of mapped out. We all have our plans sort of worked out. We've all determined what's going to be our next step and where we want to end up. And we have our dreams all laid out. And when somebody comes along and somebody changes those plans or alters those plans or rearranges those plans or causes us, heaven forbid, to have to completely abandon those plans, we're not real happy campers, are we? At least not for those of us who are control freaks like I am. Some of you may remember the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. How many of you remember reading that over the years? Calvin and Hobbes. It was a uniquely American comic strip that was created by cartoonist Bill Watterson. It ran from November 18, 1985 to December the 31st, 1995. And someone said about it that it was the last great newspaper comic. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what someone said about it. If you're not familiar with Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin was a mischievous, adventurous six-year-old boy, and Hobbes was his sarcastic, stuffed tiger. So you can sort of picture this in your mind, what it was like. Well, one year, Calvin wrote a letter to Santa, and this is what it said. Dear Santa, every year at this time, I send you a list of what I want for Christmas, and every year you callously ignore it and bring me practical things I don't want at all. What's the deal? Are you insane? Have you gone senile? Can't you read? Are you just a vindictive, twisted oaf bent on destroying little kids' dreams? <laughs> of course, Hobbes reads this letter and he responds, you know, you, you might want to sleep on this one. And then Calvin responds and says, I know, but it felt good to write it. Sometimes it feels good to just say it, 
We don't like change. Sometimes it feels good to write it. We don't like change. We can all identify with that reality. We don't like our plans. We think we know what's best. We think we know where we need to be and what we need to do. And then God comes along and God changes things. And God changes through using other people. God changes through circumstances. God changes through reversals. And suddenly our plans are turned upside down and nothing is like we thought it was going to be. And we're frustrated and we're aggravated. I have to tell you that this has been a year of change, hasn't it? These last 10 months have been difficult adjustments almost every week, if not sometimes every day. I mean, you have scientists on one side saying one thing and scientists on the other saying another thing, and the frustration of trying to figure out which is the one that's true and which is the one you should follow, and all the change that it brings, my heart has gone out to you parents and to, you, uh, to your children and to you teachers. I can't imagine what it must be like getting up every day wondering you know, what today is going to be like. Sometimes we're in class, sometimes we're online. Is it going to be red or is it going to be green? Is it going to be gold? What, what's the color going to be? You know, we like to get up and know what the plan is for the day. We like to get up and understand what's happening next. We don't want people to upset the apple cart. We like to know, and then you mix in the political intrigue that goes with it and who's using these things for their own political advantage and all the changes. And to be honest with you, I've been frustrated on many occasions in the past 10 months. And maybe you haven't. You're just more spiritual than I am. I don't like change. You ask the staff. I don't like change. The changes we've made around here over the years, you've had to pull me kicking and screaming to make those changes. I, I don't like change, but change is the reality of life. And change is something that we all have to experience. And it's something that frustrates every one of us in the process of living our lives. Someone has once said, or someone once said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. In other words, we have to learn to live every single day submitted to the will of God, knowing that if he changes our plans, there is a reason and there's a purpose. Just listen to some of the scriptures about this. Proverbs 16, verse 1. We may make our plans, but God has the last word. Or Proverbs 16, 9. A person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Or Proverbs 19, 21. Many plans are in a person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. Or one that's my favorite from the New Testament, I often go back to it when my plans get changed and when I get a little cocky about life. This is what James said in chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. <laughs> yeah, that's right, isn't it? What your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting, he says, is evil. The fact is that our plans get changed. 
And we have to be willing to say, God willing, in every part of our lives. This is my plan. This is what I think we'll be doing. This is where I think we're going. This is what I dream of accomplishing. But the fact of the matter is, sometimes our plans change. And let me remind you that God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And when God changes the plan, then God has a purpose in doing so. Even if those changes take us to an uncomfortable spot in life. And sometimes the changes that take place bring us to uncomfortable moments and uncomfortable experiences. Think about Joseph for a moment. We just read his story. Think about Joseph for a moment. Here is a man who is betrothed to Mary. That's far more than engagement. A young girl can take her ring off and give it back to her suitor and walk away from an engagement. But if you were betrothed, you were legally committed to each other. It took a writing of divorcement to separate the two of you. And consider what's going on in his mind. He's looking forward to what's coming. Months down the road, a wedding, a ceremony. And then the consummation of this relationship. And he's looking forward to all of these things that have been planned out. He and Mary have, have planned out. And then suddenly, he learns the story that Mary is pregnant and it's not his child. What's he going to do? Everything he had planned has just been turned upside down. His entire life has just been turned upside down. And God dispatches an angel from heaven to announce to him that the child that's going to be born through Mary is the Christ child. Take her to be your wife. He was already doing what? He was already making another plan. I'm going to put her away privately. I don't want to cause her any more harm. She's already going to have to experience. So he was already making another plan. And yet all of this is a reminder that God stepped into the lives of Mary and Joseph and he changed, he upended the plans that they had. And because God changed Joseph's plans, it resulted in some pretty awkward situations. Have you ever thought about it? He faced conditions he couldn't explain. He had problems he couldn't solve. He endured rumors he couldn't silence, and he had consequences he didn't choose. It wasn't a very pleasant place to be. But through it all, through it all, God was at work doing a greater work. God was working out a plan that was greater than what Joseph and Mary had planned for themselves, and that was to bring into this world the Savior of all mankind. Isn't that incredible? God plans something sometimes, or God's plans sometimes are perplexing. They're fearful. They bring us to painful moments. They bring us to places of great disappointment. And because of our temporal view, we can only see horizontally. It's pretty hard to deal with those changes in our plans. They're pretty upsetting to us because everything has been turned upside down for us. But do you realize that God is not looking from that perspective? God is looking from the eternal perspective, and he sees the beginning and the end, and he understands everything that's going on, and he is ultimately at work even in the most uncomfortable of moments that we're having to endure. 
in the course of our lives. He knows what he's seeking to accomplish. I was trying to think of a way that I could illustrate what I mean to you about having unpleasant circumstances where God has changed your plans and yet God using it for good. And I thought about my favorite dessert on the planet. Now, you're going to think I'm a nut. You're going to think I'm crazy. But my favorite dessert on the planet is a chocolate chip cookie. And God forbid that you would put nuts in it. I live with nuts. I don't want to have to eat them too. Mary and I last week took a couple of days off and we went away and just spent a little while doing some things just to get our minds off of ministry and get our minds off of the Christmas season and all the things that are coming that we're going to have to do and so forth. And we went one meal to a very nice, expensive restaurant. And we ordered off the menu, but our pre-agreement was that we're going to choose something on the menu that will leave room for us to have dessert at the end. We never do that. We never buy dessert. It doesn't look like it if you look at me, but we never buy desserts at the end of the meal. And so we we're going to do this because we're in a fancy restaurant. You've got to have not only their entrees, you've got to have the dessert at the end, you know. And so we eat the meal. It was a delicious and a delicious meal, and then they gave us that dessert menu. Can I just tell you that probably eight of the ten things that are on that menu I can't even pronounce. I could read the ingredients in them. I couldn't even pronounce them. And Mary's looking over the list. The waiter comes and says, ma'am, what would you like? And she orders something that I don't even know how to say. And then he turns to me and he says, sir, what would you like? And on the menu there was a chocolate chip cookie. It was on the kids' menu, but it was the <laughs> chocolate chip cookie, a big four-inch chocolate chip cookie. I said, that's what I want. He said, you want ice cream with it? No. <laughs> you want whipped cream on it? No. I want a chocolate chip cookie. Now, I tell you that story for this reason. If you've ever made chocolate chip cookies, and I don't mean that you've gone and bought one of those rolls and cut it off and you've laid it on the pan. You've ever made chocolate chip cookies from scratch, if you all know what that is and where you can buy it. If you've ever made chocolate chip cookies, you know that the ingredients that go into a chocolate chip cookie, sometimes separately on their own, aren't all that tasty. Right? Some of the things that you like to cook, some of the things that you like to bake, Sometimes the ingredients that go into those, if you eat them separately and on their own, they're not that tasty. But you know what happens? Those ingredients come together and they mix with one another and they're placed under what? Intense heat. And what comes out of that is this incredibly delicious dessert that you can't seem to get enough of. And I can never get enough of chocolate chip cookies. Our lives are a lot like that, aren't they? They're made up of a lot of different ingredients, and some of those ingredients are pretty unpleasant. Some of those, those, those ingredients are not very tasty. But God is the master chef, and God is the one who is taking all of these different pieces, all of these different ingredients, and he knows how they're going to interact with one another when they're placed 
under the intense heat. And he knows that the outcome is the good of the whole. Because when I eat that chocolate chip cookie, I'm not thinking about that particular ingredient that isn't too tasty on its own. I'm thinking about the enjoyment of the good of the whole. And the Christmas story that causes us to be filled with wonder is a reminder that God changes our plans, but when God changes our plans, even if he brings us to circumstances that are unpleasant and things that we don't necessarily like, God has a way of making things work together under the intense heat to bring something that is good and glorious for the cause of others and for his own glory itself. And I just uh, just his own glory himself. Can I just remind you that God wants to treat you better and take you farther and lift you higher than you ever thought about going or could ever achieve on your own. And the Christmas story is a reminder of that. And we look at the Christmas story and we're filled with wonder here is a man's life who was turned upside down and yet in the midst of his circumstances God was at work and God was changing things from what he had planned but God was doing something even greater God was doing something even greater even through difficult and unpleasant circumstances I don't know what you've had to deal with over the past year maybe it's a divorce maybe it's a stillbirth or a child that died. You know, parents are supposed to, to, live, to die first. Children are supposed to out, outlive their, uh, parents are supposed to outlive their children. Maybe it was a job reversal. Maybe it was something that happened in your life that's extremely unpleasant, and you wonder, what in the world? My plans have been turned upside down, but God hadn't forgotten you. And the ingredients where you are might not be very pleasant at this particular moment, but I tell you that God, the master chef, can take all of those things and blend them together, and he can turn out something that you never even imagined possible. Because that's the kind of God we serve. And that's the story of the, of the birth of Christ, the Christ child in Bethlehem. If there have been changes in your life this year that you don't understand and are hard to explain and you don't really like, now listen to me. It's time to wash your face and get up off the floor and get moving again. Start looking at how God is going to accomplish a greater purpose through your life than the one you originally had planned. Do you think the purpose that God accomplished through Joseph was greater than the plan that Joseph and Mary had made out? I guarantee you it was greater. And God has great plans for your life. And so God is guiding us when he changes our plans. And the story at Christmas reminds us of that fact. Secondly, Christmas reminds us that God became like us in order to save us. God became like us in order to save us. I want you to go back and read with me again verses 20 through 23. Follow along. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. I want you to think about that for a few moments. Until the angel appeared to Joseph on this occasion, I'm not sure how many Jewish men and women really thought that the Messiah would be born through a virgin to a virgin. I know what Isaiah says, but knowing what it was like in the first century, I can't help but think that a lot of them assumed that it was going to be a chaste young bride that would conceive the promised child in the usual manner. But this child who was being born at this time was no ordinary child. Amen? He was no ordinary child. This was God coming in human flesh to do for mankind what they couldn't do for themselves. And I want you to notice that even in the announcement of his birth is the declaration that Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. In his very name, Jesus. That name is taken from the word Yeshua, It's the Greek form of Yeshua, and Yeshua means Yahweh saves, God saves. He was given the name Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel means God with us. How do we miss it? How do people who read the Christmas story miss it? That the one who was born in Bethlehem became like us in order to save us, and that one is God who has come into our midst. A number of years ago, it's been several years now, a local minister in our area wrote an article that was in the newspaper that said, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, you know, the news media never wants to miss a good controversy. And so one of the writers at the paper contacted three or four other pastors, and one of them was me, and to ask what we thought about his comments. Did we really think that Jesus had never said that he was God? And the Bible doesn't declare him to be God. And to be honest with you, when I heard what he said, a minister of a prominent denomination, when I heard what he said, I had to ask myself, what Bible is he reading? From the very beginning, with the naming of the Christ child, we're told that he is God. But did you know that Jesus said that he and the Father were one? That's a declaration of deity. He said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's a declaration of deity. He called himself the I Am. That's the Old Testament name for Jehovah, for God. He was identifying himself as deity. Even the Father himself spoke from heaven and confirmed that Jesus is God. It was a declaration of deity. Think about the prophecies in the scriptures of the Old Testament and all the fulfillment of Jesus of those prophecies. That's the declaration of his deity. Think about the miracles. Even the religious leaders said, no ordinary man can do what this man is doing. That was the declaration of his deity. But maybe the best example I can get you, give you is from those who were his opponents, those who, who were against Jesus in his ministry. Listen to what they said, John chapter 5, verse 18. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. 
Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Or John chapter 10, verse 33, it says, We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but the blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. How can you miss that? From the names he was given through the life that he lived to the enemies themselves declared that the one who was born in Bethlehem was like no other baby that's ever been born. The one who was born there was fully God and he was fully human. In theology, we call that the hypostatic union. You want to say that with me? Hypo, like hypochondriac, hypostatic union. You want to say that with me? Hypostatic union. If you want to carry it on, it's the hypostatic union of the dual natures of Christ. You say, can you explain all of that to me? Look at me. Do you think I'm that smart? No, I can't explain all of that to you. But I can tell you that the Bible declares that Jesus wasn't part man and part God. Jesus was fully man and he was fully God and he was one personality. And in this miracle that God performed on this Christmas, God brought together in the womb of Mary, God and man in the person of Jesus Christ. He wasn't part God and part man. He was all God and all man except for one thing. He didn't have a sin nature like you and me. And what does that mean? That he's fully man. Well, physically that means he was born a baby, he became a teenager, he grew to be a man, he ate, he drank, he slept, he bled, he died. He was in every way physically human. He was fully man mentally. Luke 2.52 says Jesus increased in wisdom. That means he learned to read, he learned to write, he learned to add, he learned to subtract just like everyone else. He didn't come out of the womb preaching repentance. He, didn't, he wasn't born performing miracles. He cried just like every other baby that was born and looked just like every other Jewish boy, baby boy that was born. Emotionally, we read the, the Gospels and we learn that he loved and he laughed and he cried and he grieved and he got angry. Remember when he went into the temple on those two separate occasions and he drove out the money changers? He even used humor and sometimes sarcasm to make his point. He was fully God, but he was fully man. And you say, well, why is that so important? Well, there's at least two major reasons. Number one, by, by becoming fully human, he identified with us. Now, the fact of the matter is you can walk out of this building and you can look up at the heavens above you and they declare the glory of God. They declare there is a creator. They declare there is a God. By the way, evolution is a religion. You look at the skies and you know there is a God, but how can you know that God except that that God comes to us and reveals himself to us and identifies with us. Listen to Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Remember that word, sympathize. To sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Listen, by becoming man, fully man, as well as fully God, he can sympathize with us. Do you understand what that means? 
It doesn't just mean that he identified with us. He can sympathize with us. It means he can suffer with us and he shares in our feelings. He's been there and he's done that because he's been where we are. He's felt what we feel. He's come to live amongst us. God in the flesh has come to live amongst us. Fully man, fully God in one personality, the personality of Jesus. And from the very beginning, from his naming, it was declared that he was God. And now he can sympathize with us. He has lived amongst us. Think about that. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. That word casting and the word cares are in a Greek tense that indicates that you're to go on casting and you're to go on. He's going to go on caring. I mean, you can paraphrase that verse like this. As you are constantly casting your cares on him, he is constantly, every day and in every way, caring for you. That's amazing, isn't it? The God of heaven isn't someone who's way out distant, who created all of this and just spun it off out into space and left it to itself. He came to us because he loves us. And he revealed himself to us. If you want to know what God is like, yes, you can read your Bible and you can look up into nature and around in nature. If you really want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. And whatever you do this Christmas, you have got to make sure that you don't believe the lies of Satan. Because he'll come to you and he'll tell you every single day, nobody cares about you and nobody understands you. And that just isn't true. It just isn't true. In coming to us in Bethlehem, he identified with our sorrows and our struggles, with our weaknesses and our pain. And precisely because he experienced the agony of humanity with an intensity we can't comprehend, he can help us when we need him most. Does that not cause you to wonder at Christmas? I mean, to be filled with amazement. <laughs> to be filled with a sense of awe. The one who was born in Bethlehem is God in the flesh. He isn't distant or disconnected. He's our Savior who was once like us and is now God with us. That's an incredible truth. But there's a second reason why this is important. And that's because by him becoming human, he became a substitute for us. Not only so he could identify with us and sympathize with us, but so that he could be the substitute for us. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Why did Jesus come in human flesh? Why did God come amongst man? You do understand that the holiness of God requires that he punish sin. If he doesn't do so, God is then unjust. But this holy and just God is also a gracious and a loving God. And this gracious and loving God took our punishment on himself so that he could show to us compassion and he could show to us forgiveness. I mean, his sinless life was absolutely essential. He had to be both God and man. Because he didn't sin, he alone could take the penalty of our sins. 
And he died a death he didn't deserve so that we could live a life we don't deserve. Do you know what you call that? You call that grace. You call that grace. That's unmerited, undeserved favor. The only way Jesus could live a sinless human life was to be fully God. And the only way Jesus could die for our sins was to become fully human. He had to be both God and man. And when you look into that manger scene and you see that little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, it ought to cause you to wonder. By the way, this Christmas season, read Philippians chapter 2. The self-limiting of the attributes of Jesus so that he could take on human flesh and pay the penalty for our sins. The famous theologian J.I. Packer who went to went to heaven earlier this year, said, It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. God becomes man. Fully God, fully man in one personality, blended together perfectly. All of it to reveal God to us. All of it to identify with us. All of it to sympathize with us. All of it to sacrifice himself for the sins of our own lives. Can I just tell you, you might be thinking to yourself, I don't fully understand that. Maybe you're watching and you're thinking, that can't be. I just don't think that's possible. I understand. I understand. I was there one time. In my own life, how could it be that God became man and this man is fully God? How, how can that happen? How, how can the dual natures of Christ come into this hypostatic union? How, how in the world could that ever really happen? I mean, can a scientist do this? Can I just tell you that just because a scientist can't do something doesn't mean that God can't do it? I hope you know that. I understand where you are. I understand where you are. You might be thinking to yourself, this is just too hard for me to believe. But you know, there's going to come a day when the evidence trumps the arguments. I heard a story about a cartoon that was shown where there was a prosecuting attorney and he was arguing a case before the judge. And the prosecutor making his case says, Judge, I want you to throw the book at this guy. He's a repeat offender. Our records show he's been arrested for selling the same bogus fountain of youth pills in 2020, 1990, 1880, 1770, and 1660. And if you didn't get it, you need to wake up. Sometimes the evidence trumps the argument. And let me tell you, that's what I'm praying this Christmas season, that for, the old, for, for many people that the evidence will trump the argument and you will see that the one who came in Bethlehem is precisely who he said he is and you will put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him to be your Savior. There's one more thing that I want to remind you as we think about the wonder of Christmas 
God is guiding us when he changes our plans. God became like us in order to save us. But thirdly, from this story of Joseph, God calls us to obey him for our own benefit. You say, I thought it was to obey him for his glory. Well, it is. It is. But I think there's a lot of folks that don't understand this whole matter of obedience to God. They sort of think that we're like God's family pets who are just sort of doing tricks for him. And when we do these tricks for him, you know, he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out some little goodie and he gives it to us when, you know, he says to roll over to lay down or to play dead, that he's going to give us one of these little treats, one of these little blessings. Can I tell you that you need to understand this story? That the reality is that God calls us to obey him for our own benefit, but not like a pet gets a treat when he does a trick. The Christian life is impossible to live apart from God's help. And our obedience, our obedience allows us to see God's presence with us, see God's presence in us, see God's presence through us, and see God's presence for us, even when the things we're experiencing are difficult and hard. It's in obedience that we get to know more of him and we find his overflowing power to us and through us. I want you to come back to the story one more time to verse 24 of chapter 1. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, please circle the next word, did, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. He did what he was told to do. He did what he was told to do and it brought a blessing beyond what a little pet treat might be given to a, when a pet treat might be given to a family animal. He brought to him his very presence, his very power. He brought to him a life that he never could have imagined. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about the life of Joseph. You know, it was a pretty rugged adventure of trusting God, wasn't it? It was a rugged adventure of trusting God. And isn't that really what we want from life too? Hmm? I mean... Do we really want to live life without any adventure, without any excitement? I mean, have nothing that you know, causes us to be filled with awe or wonder at our existence and in our existence? I mean, God is calling us to a life we cannot live without his divine help. Joseph could have never done this without God's divine help, and he would have never known that help had he not done what God told him to do. Some of you don't have the experience of God because you're not doing what you know God wants you to do. I mean, God calls us to obey him for our own benefit because when we obey him, he brings to us this incredible, adventurous life that he wants us to live. And in that adventurous life, he promises that he will come to us and he will help us and he will be with us and he will live the life through us. Because we can't live it on our own. In Joseph's obedience, through his obedience, and because of his obedience, God deeply and richly blessed him. 
but not just blessed him, he blessed every one of us who 2,000 years later are still celebrating the birth of the Christ child. Aren't you glad Joseph obeyed? Aren't you glad Joseph and Mary obeyed God? You realize that Christmas is really about this incredible story of adventure, whether it's Joseph or whether it's Jesus. I mean, nobody left more security than Jesus. Nobody faced more threats than Jesus. Nobody endured more perils than Jesus. Nobody felt more hatred from mankind than Jesus. And nobody satisfied the full wrath of God but Jesus. I mean, when you think about Christmas, Christmas is really about danger. It's about risk. It's about mission. It's about faith. It's not about wrapping ourselves up in a gift and putting ourselves under a tree where we can be comfortable until we get to a little better time in life. God wants us to give us this incredibly adventurous life in following him. And he's promised that in obeying him, we will benefit by his presence and by his power and by his help. He wants to bless us in that way. We're not supposed to be playing it safe. We're not supposed to be playing it safe. Joseph and Mary didn't play it safe. Jesus certainly didn't play it safe. And you and I aren't supposed to be living our lives to play it safe. The wonder of Christmas is found in the adventure of following Christ, even through the changes we don't enjoy and can't fully understand. Yet we follow him in obedience. Let me just close with this thought. A person that wants to experience the awe and wonder of Christmas has got to be willing to say, God, give me something great to do for your glory, and I'll give up everything, including my life, to do it. That's the adventure. And Joseph is our example that when God changes our plans, it is him guiding us to where he wants us to be. That he had to become man, fully man, as well as fully God, in order to save us from our sins. So that in salvation, we could have this incredibly adventurous life. Not a life of security and safety. A life where we step out by faith and we live by faith and we trust God. And we say, God, give me something great to do for your glory. And I'll give up everything, including my life, to do it for you. God is inviting us to this magnificent journey this magnificent adventure.